Crude Audacity Podcast. Okay. All right, Jim, it is nine o'clock. Let's go ahead and kick this one off. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you all had wonderful, safe, happy Labor Days, and I hope they were all outside and enjoying the beautiful weather because I know up here in Colorado, it has gone from 100 degrees down to 20. So (laughs) great way to snap us all back into work. Um, As you know, you are listening to the SirTech webinar series. I am Catherine Mills. I am an operations engineer and head of digital strategy at SirTech. So before we jump into today's session, wherever you are listening from, go ahead and leave us a rate and review. If you are on YouTube, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We love your comments, your questions hearing your feedback. We genuinely appreciate your engagement, and so do our panelists. So anything you've got for us, be sure to ask questions along the way. This is really about keeping the conversation going. Today, I have been waiting for this topic for months, y'all. It is so relevant to 2020. It transcends every industry, and it is so relevant for the pivot that is the oil field right now. So without further ado, how to lie with data, algorithms behaving badly. I am joined today by data junkie, a digital guru, Miss oh, and author, <laughs> Mr. Jim Crompton. Thanks so much for joining today. Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? How is uh, Colorado Springs? Well, it, it's just on that edge of uh, a rain-snow mix. Um, we've had our 65-degree temperature change as well. Um, that mixed with all of the haze from the fires from the uh, from the storm, Colorado Springs is not is not having one of its better days. Uh, oh. it, uh, if this is God's country, uh, uh, God took a vacation for the last week or so. Yeah, well, it is 2020. What can you expect? <laughs> well, Jim, this is such a great topic to kick us off. I know you've been looking forward to it today as well, and you know, from the nightly news to the Daily Post. It is more evident than ever that not only do we understand our data, but we understand how to interpret our data because, as you know, it is so easy to lie with data from visuals to smoothing, normalization equations, anything you can do to make it look just a little bit better or spin the narrative you want to spin. So, you know... I wanted to start off this uh, conversation sort of with a story. When I started on advanced characterization and working with um, advanced data sets back in 2015, the first thing I was taught was how to go into my data and understand what was missing. That was the most important thing. And it seems with machine learning and AI and all of these new buzzwords, People are forgetting that the digital twin is an assistant, not a replacement. So to kick us off, I know you've got some slides to show us along the way. And actually, if you are going to be listening to this later on the podcast, uh, let me tell you to go and check it out on YouTube so that you can look at the slides along the way. But Jim, what are you sort of seeing across the board right now with data interpretation and sort of where we're failing? 
Well, I want to, first of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, as a member of Surtech's uh, kind of informal advisory board, uh, it, it's connected to a, a great company and, uh, you know, got, done a lot of work for a lot of years. It may, it may be one of the, uh, the best known little secrets, you know, in, in, in the <laughs> so, uh, that, uh, that is, uh, something I, I really appreciate with, but right up front, I have to, uh, put a kind of a, a comment here that it is not my purpose to teach people how to lie with data. Uh, you know, as a, really? new, why not? Nah, be, uh, well, that's, too, that's too easy. I, I'm going to teach the hard part. I want, I'm going to try to teach my students. I'm a, uh, a lecturer at Colorado School of Mines in the Petroleum Engineering Department in uh, uh, data analytics. But I want to teach my students how to recognize when, you know, something doesn't feel right, something doesn't sound right from a presentation. Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the, the nightly news, uh, political channels, the rest of that. Uh, th that's indeed a serious problem as citizens. We need to be informed with what people are trying to tell us. But it also happens in the boardroom. It happens in, uh, in uh, when a, a salesman is coming and trying to sell you a new technology or when a, 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 an, an entrepreneur is trying to sell you leases or, uh, or an interpreter is trying to sell you wells. So set, I mean, it exactly. really kind of per, uh, pervades almost all of our discussions because we ha now we have so much data and we have all this incredible technology and we can manipulate and do things with the data that, you know, it was, it can't say you've never done it before because people have been doing data analytics and geophysics for 60 years. So, I mean, data analytics isn't new, but the, the intensity of the data and the amount of things that we're showing are, are, are newer. And um, since so much of this data driven stuff kind of gets out, side of the area of physical constraints, it is easier and easier to manipulate what the answer is. And as you pointed out, too few people think about the data set that goes into the model. And because we are mostly enamored with the code. Yeah. And uh, the code, you know, I had a, in one of my guest lectures, so the class I'm putting on, Dr. Rajan Chakshi of University of Tulsa, he said the code is only a small part of the solution. And that is so true. And uh, one of the things we really emphasize is look at your data. Well, I think there is also the fear with the general public that you have to have some sort of advanced degree to interpret what the data is telling you. And that's just not the case. We assess risk in our personal lives daily. We sit there and decide A or B options uh, just from a social aspect to working in the field to being in an office and it's something that people need to be more confident with I think so that we can avoid anything from gaslighting headlines to a bad sales pitch to when you know we're being asked to fudge that p50 just a little bit better yeah your manager wants the p90 uh, all the time right so <laughs> that, that whole sure, idea, why not <laughs> chase that behind idea pipe. <laughs> is, a, is a classic one but you know, most, most people, you know, they're, they're, they ran into mathematics in algebra in high school, and that's when they stopped. That's when they got uh, uh, intimidated by what the process was. And they, they essentially, then, that's where they kind of said, well, this is too much for me. I can't handle it. Uh, you could even go back into third or fourth grade when, when teachers start introducing fractions. I mean, people really don't understand ratios and fractions very well in terms of 
kind of how it's used and all the rest of it. So there, there is a significant intimidation factor. I'm not smart enough to understand this. Let, mm-hmm. you know, the expert who, you know, he built all that stuff in Python. It's got to be right, right? Well, that, that we have to get, you know, into this element. And even people who are, you know, got a graduate degree in, in some engineering discipline, they still get buffalo. They still get intimidated by some of the things that people try to do. So we all need to, um, you know, take this to heart to make better decisions. I completely agree. Well, um, do you want to go ahead and show your uh, slides there and we can uh, jump right into sort of the heart of it? Okay, let me find it. Can you see my slides now? Yes, sir, we can. Look at that awesome promo art. <laughs> like I said, you made me look like a wanted poster on this thing. but uh, Yeah, we got to work on your selfies. Uh, that's me at the entrance to the Edgar Experimental Mine in Idaho Springs, uh, <laughs> where Mines does a lot of its, uh, its work, both in drilling and in uh, and mining and, and many uh, a whole bunch of other disciplines join in that. But given that, let's kind of jump into what we're t- we want to talk about here. And um, I mean, this this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, it is actually by an English mathematician in the 1940s and 50s, George Box. Uh, and the the phrase is just so wonderful that I just keep using it. That you know that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And now with uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, digital twins, AI, whatever you want to call it, we are using models more and more as we move forward. And, uh, and those models are, have tremendous value. I mean, they, they help us to go from understanding what is happening now to predicting what could happen, what should happen, what, you know, in the next three months, six months, or whatever. So they but what give the us problem this- is? The problem is with that, Jim, just jumping in here. If you don't have the data, how can you really set up a model? Again, all models are wrong. Some are useful. But how can you set up a model when you don't have the data? It's not as simple as filling gaps because filling gaps, as we've proven, you know, week over week, even this year, it doesn't get you to the right outcome, but it does provide a bit of mayhem. Well, and, and 2020 is a great example for, uh, you know, part of this story that, uh, you know, usually you go to an old gray-haired expert like me because they've lived through a lot of history. They, they've seen a lot. They can, you know, they can, they can predict and through experience, uh, you know, and a lot of things about what happened, why it happened, what were the correlation effects, et cetera. But that presumes a couple of things. First of all, it presumes the future is going to look like the past. And when you have a transformation, and I don't care if it's a global pandemic, an economic downturn, a new technology, or whatever it is, all of a sudden you you get into this realm where the future may not be predicted by even an expert understanding of the past. So building models on historical data, which that's the data we got, and building them to match history match and good old reservoir characterization, uh, you know, techniques of, you know, you, you try to build your, your simulation model. And this is Darcy's law. This is mm-hmm. mathematics from the 18th century and, you know, computer software from the 1960s and 70s. But we built a, we built a model that helped us match historical performance and then use that to predict. And when that was true, 
then our model was pretty good. And it, we could do all kinds of useful things from reserve calculations to uh, production uh, levels and profitability levels, et cetera, et cetera. But when there is a dislocation, all of a sudden, all of that great historical knowledge and expertise may get thrown out the window. It tends to, right? I mean, when we start utilizing the digital twin as a replacement instead of the art of interpretation, which is what it's meant to be, it's meant to be a tool that allows you to be in two places at once and look at bigger data sets that you otherwise couldn't handle, then you're right. It does go out the window and all of a sudden the story starts forming, but it's the story you want, not the story that's being told. That, um, I use the phrase AI as a coworker. <laughs> uh, not a replacement. I, it, you know, AI is going from a tool and it's becoming so performant. We've got all these other, uh, you know, uh, interface technology, speech, et cetera, all these other things. So AI is evolving to being, becoming our coworker. But if we give up and say, well, you, you take over, then going into autonomous systems and the rest of that, uh, you're, you're, you have a problem. And that's what, you know, kind of the story is about today. So if I can go to the next slide, I am a, I don't really consider myself a big data geek, as you called me, but <laughs> I, 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 love, <laughs> I love to be a storyteller with data. And I think that's what's the powerful part about all this. And of course, I'm a Game of Thrones uh, devotee so, as well. So, you know, what, what I've got here is, um, you know, obviously one of my favorite stories of all of this stuff. It, and, uh, and the things that we try to teach in our class, and I, I try to teach every time I get up and give it a, a, a lecture, is that telling stories with data is extremely powerful. Now, it's extremely powerful in a good way, and it can be extremely damaging in a negative way, and kind of all shades in between. But, you know, here, my, one of my favorite characters, Tyrion Lannister, said, what unites people? Is it armies, gold, flags? It's stories, he continued. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. And nothing can stop it. And no enemy can defeat it. So if you get to this point, and even if you're just sell, selling a drilling program, you are telling a story. If you're trying to get someone to buy a new suite of technologies or whatever it is, you are telling a story. And that, that really differentiates you know, kind of the really good salespeople from the not so good ones. And, but then you have to differentiate the really good st storytellers from the ones that are telling more accurate stories based on an understanding of the data and those that are snake oil salesmen. And uh, you have all of these in, in lots of places in the world. A hundred percent. And whether or not you want to admit it, no matter what your job is, no matter what your role or responsibility, the black and white on paper, everyone is a salesman and you need to be yes, able to interpret. You're, everyone is in sales, whether you're doing a personal brand to a company that happens to be a consulting group to, you know, talking to your manager and pushing an idea forward. It's all sales. It's all storytelling. A job interview, you are selling yourself. You are, your CV is telling a story about what you have accomplished and what you believe you can do and you want to get the, your potential employer under, understanding that. Mm -hmm. So it, when you, you begin to look at these things, and, and this is such a rich topic, you can go on for a long time, 
to talk about these things. But there are issues uh, in in and I'm not trying to really infer here of the those who tell malicious stories for personal or criminal even kind of reasons. I'm I'm really want to talk about those that are trying to do the right thing, but still without an understanding of data, with all the rest of that, issues of optimism, over-optimism, complexity, over-reliance on technology, the whole challenge of uncertainty and bias and, you know, correlations. So the, the modern uh, uh, machine learning techniques are extremely powerful correlation engines. But in many cases, without the right data and the right attributes, correlation is not causation. Yes, you get a... Uh, an R squared of 0.98, but that doesn't mean it's right. That just means you have a very good correlation with the data that you get. And then a kind of an idea of algorithms behaving badly. It's funny that you mentioned the numbers because in any storytelling, I've never run into someone who really enjoys breaking down the numbers. And that's the only universal language. It's the only time data can't lie is when you have the actual raw numbers. Yeah, data doesn't lie. Interpretations can lie, uh, and uh, correlations can lie. Regression analysis can not give you, uh, you know, the the basis for a for a good model. Mm-hmm. Well, this next slide shows a picture from the nineteen from World War II in in Britain, and it to me it really tells a story about one of the most important themes about all this stuff is understanding the problem you're trying to solve. So this was a, a British uh, fighter bomber that had just come back from a run in Europe and, you know, essentially got the hell blasted out of it, right? So uh, the, the British military hired a group of mathematicians, you know, dons from Cambridge and Oxford and all the rest of them. And they really were trying to apply statistical analysis more than just kind of project, um, projectile aiming uh, tables, which, you know, goes back to World War One if you want to talk about the application of math in military applications. But essentially, they wanted, you know, they were running out of pilots. They were running out of planes. They were trying to figure out how to protect their planes so they could come back, you know, more often than not. And so, you know, a classic, um, you know, statistician went in here and he began to look at all this damage on this aircraft. And he said, well, how can we maybe redesign the plane or armor the plane or do something about this so this damage wouldn't happen? But then some clever mathematician, and, and fortunately at the time, the English had a whole bunch of good ones. They started looking at this and they said, well, this plane landed, this, this pilot got back. That, that's not the problem. The, dam- the visual thing that you can see is not the problem. What we need to understand is the damage in the planes that didn't come back because our, our, our business objective was survivability. It wasn't you know, fixing up a plane. Correct. So, and, and, and if you begin to apply that to today, and, and obviously what's happened in the last maybe five or six years in the, particularly the North American shale basins, we became focused on how fast we can drill a well, how much production, how, how much we can increase the initial production, how much oil we can get out of the ground, and which were the obvious things. And, and we actually did a really good job at that. But if, if we forgot the basic problem of how to make money, we drilled faster, cheaper wells and then reinvested that money in very expensive completion jobs. We produced more oil without remembering that we were there to make a profit. So 
we produce more barrels and but at a loss. Uh, we we begin to focus on you know um, you know the details that we could see, but not the most important problems that we needed to solve. Well, the other so, side of that is that the the introduction of shale and certain private equity and this pushing of data, as you said, and not necessarily lying with data, but making an option look uh, option A look a little better than option B also became a twist and exit strategy. The exit strategy was the payout, not the science itself. And that was the problem is that the data started getting ignored and thus the Ponzi scheme of oil or what some call the Ponzi scheme of oil started having its birth. True. And I, I you call those the flip producers, right? That, uh, that would buy a lease and, and uh, prove up some potential and then flip it and just like real estate, you know, they would they would make their money by exit and, and their poor investors and the rest of that way ended up holding the bag with a very low ROCE or very low ROI as they go through these things. And then we, to gain production, we started drilling everywhere, right? And uh, there was exorbitant lease fees and uh, we started drilling the bad rock. We could drill it faster, we could get more production out of it, but we drilled, we were drilling the bad rock. And one of, one of my lectures here, I said, the rocks get a vote. And so essentially, you know, if you look at, um, this is kind of one of the classic statistical things, is if, uh, if you look at all the oil and gas production over the last four or five years in the shale basins, it's not a normal distribution. It's, it's what's called a log normal distribution. More, uh, more wells produce below average production than, than produce above average. That's, that's, so the, it's not normally distributed. It's not a Gaussian distribution. They use the statistical kind of phrases around that. So, you know, you drill lots of wells and most of them are below average. Using average techniques, using uh, the rest of those things leads you to the wrong answer because it is, you know, it's the outliers that make a whole lot of money. And you need to understand what the attributes of the outliers are, the best rock, the best drilling technique, the best completion technique, the best artificial lift optimization technique. Those wells make money. Mm-hmm. Most of the others don't. And that's kind of one of the, the kind of challenges. And, and with shale, it, it became the real entree for data-driven models. Because, you know, the physics of uh, Darcy's law and, you know, uh, flow of Newtonian fluids through porous media, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that doesn't apply to fracture-driven, uh, uh, fracture-created, either artificial or uh, geologic you know, fracture-driven sort of production of, uh, of the shale formation. So we had to rely on data. The physics didn't work in a sense. And, uh, and so this opened up the idea. We, had a, we may, maybe didn't understand fracture flow very well, but we had a ton of data. And mm-hmm. so therefore, you know, the, the big data analytics drove us into the use of these techniques and technologies. Not wrong. It's just we needed to understand the data that we were trying to use. Well, we're getting a number of questions and I see everyone coming across. So I'll start pinging you as we get a little further along. But to your point, it's not necessarily about the buzzwords that are big data. It's really more about better data because I think that what is lost on individuals is that big data and the collection of data and building a data bank, such as we've seen across multiple industries this year. And again, going back to the nightly news where we've seen in the health departments, there's a need for better data and there is a need to have 
that art of interpretation reintroduced so that you can shift between the good data and the bad data because big data has bad data in it. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, and data is data. I mean, you should, you know, get down to the point it's either a good quality or not good quality. It represents a certain uh, type of approach or doesn't represent a certain type of approach. There's uh, getting back to the data, you can understand how you're building your model. And then the the modern, uh, you know, techniques are, are fantastic at, at taking all of this data and essentially building that predictive uh, engine that we're trying to find. Because you know, knowing what's good today is important, but knowing what's going to happen tomorrow is even more important. But again, it's the your point here. We were trying to to separate this different from exaggeration <laughs> and, uh, and from reality. And you know, some people look at exaggeration as lying. Well, to some it might be, uh, but really, <laughs> you know, that when you can exaggerate a particular point, that's a good one, and sell it to a skeptical audience, then obviously you're a good salesman. And, and every good salesman exaggerates. I mean, I, I can remember back when I, in early days of my career, which is a long time ago, I didn't have a lot of data. I didn't have a big data problem. I had a lack of data problem. So my uh, first mentor taught me how to interpret with art. I mean, essentially, he told me how to draw a, a, a map and where the anticlines look like anticlines and the synclines look like synclines. <laughs> and uh, the right trap looked like a, an attractive sort of thing that was familiar to the audience. And I, I didn't have a whole lot of data to, to do that with. So I, I, I had a mental model of what this geology looked like. And, and I, but, but with that, I, I, I could exaggerate. And I was, I was there to sell prospects to either management or joint venture partners or whatever. And I sold some really good ones. I found some some pretty large fields early in my career, and I sold some dogs to some people who wells that should never have been drilled in a million years. I I, I found a lacolith in Northwest Colorado that I, I interpreted as a as a prospect and got drilled. And you know, looking at the data there, it should have been cautious. That that one, I I need to take back and ask forgiveness for. Yeah, is there a statute of limitations? Because you are being recorded. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, you know, on that point of exaggeration, flashy title, How to Lie with Data, we all do it daily. And not one person on this call can probably say otherwise because we are asked to fill in gaps that we have no gaps to fill in. I know I exaggerate all the time, and I also know my boss is watching. So <laughs> I'm being recorded as well. But going back to your point, the point of this conversation is not necessarily to teach everyone how to continue lying with data, but how to stop the lie. And so to your point, with all those hand mappings and learning how to do things from scratch and up, which is something that we don't do very often anymore, you learned where the art of interpretation had to end, not continue. Or, or be constrained, absolutely. So um, we all lie. We're all guilty. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, and I think students take my classes and minds thinking they're going to learn all these really creative algorithms and how to program with R and Python and do this stuff. And in a sense, they're disappointed because I, I teach a little bit of that or I bring people in to teach that. But Did you I'll, just we, get your student reviews back and now you know they're disappointed? Well, <laughs> yeah, they've told me that. I've gotten direct feedback. Said I, I, I took this class in order to learn how to improve my Python programming. Well, and they didn't do that. 
But they've also come back and said, you know what? I never realized data was so important. I never realized we're trying to use all of these different kinds of data. I didn't realize visualization was so important, et cetera, et cetera. So while on one hand, I missed their expectation, on another hand, they grew in knowledge of something that I think is even more valuable. So let me just move on to the next one. But again, jump in when you've got a good question to, uh, to talk about. Oh, yeah, I will. Um, this idea of complexity, you know, big data, lots of data, lots of variety of data, lots of the faster velocity of data is hitting us all. So now we're really confused on how to handle that. We've, we've broken Excel. We've, uh, we, we can't figure out how to do dashboards that don't show too much. Uh, and therefore distract or maybe even, you know, send people in the wrong direction. These three pictures, I think, are a fantastic story on the uh, in improvement of data visualization techniques. So first of all, you've got the cockpit of the Apollo spacecraft. And all those toggles and switches, this wasn't all that digital. Uh, but you had this massive amount of things, which is why it took years for the astronauts to, to train on, on what it is you're trying to go on. Well, there were some improvements when we moved to the space shuttle. Uh, there were a lot more data with uh, digital displays and different things that could pop up. But, but look at what SpaceX has done with Dragon. Um, you know, I've heard this space shuttle you know, called the, the iPhone in space or something like that. It really changes the paradigm of the human-machine interface. And that interface between what the human does, and the human is very good at a lot of things. It's, the human brain's not really good at calculating a lot of data quickly. That's what the computer can do. The computer, uh, the human brain is very good at recognizing patterns and, you know, kind of recognizing the, the relationships between things. So the two need to work together. You talked about AI as a co-worker. Uh, that ha absolutely has to be because the human brain can no longer process all of the data in the time frame that's needed in many of these situations. But if the if the machine can display that data and the human can interrogate that data in a way that makes sense and uses the capabilities of the machine for what the, it can do and the capabilities for the human or what they can do, and the two work together to make better decisions, then we got the ideal state. But dealing with this complexity, and, and there's no doubt about it, this in my world is of information architecture, the world behind that screen is incredibly complicated and mm -hmm. where you get the data from and how you normalize and how you bring it, you know, the data together and how you, I mean, just the whole idea of understanding the data itself is, is becoming half the project. Uh, and again, that's not the half the project that's the sexiest or the one your, your boss wants you to do work on. But if you don't do that, then you're not going to understand what are the, uh, the key signals as you move forward. Well, that's actually leading us to some of our questions. Um, the first one being, so yes, models have errors, but the point of modeling and the point of putting this big data to use is to minimize those errors. So are we really to assume that human error is less than, say, big data error, modeling error, things along those lines? I'm not sure I can say which is the most significant. I think they're both important. Um, the problems in data or their data errors or data quality, there's noise, there's, uh, uh, you know, sampling bias, there's, there's all sorts of, there are problems with data that you can 
begin to overcome through data processing techniques, without a doubt. I mean, if you take sensor data, I mean, it, it's some of the noisiest you'll ever find. You can run despiking algorithms. Where for lost dropouts, you can do smoothing algorithms, et cetera, et cetera. You can do a lot of things to correct the, the errors uh, in the data that you, that you have. Um, and that's good. I mean, you need to, you need to be able to do that. What, what the problem is you can't correct errors in data that you never recorded in the first place. And that's some of the, the bias that, that, that get, that gets fit in here. Uh, humans, um, I mean, clearly domain expertise helps to correct interpretation, human errors. And they realize, you know, that, uh, when an, uh, a recommendation comes out that isn't even physically possible. And I've, I've been in presentations where somebody ran some uh, surrogate vector model and did all these sort of things on stuck pipe problems. And the answer wasn't even physically possible. Um, but, you know, a guy was trying to get his PhD at a, at a very well-known university because of that. Uh, so clearly there are data problems and there are human problems and, and we need the right processes, et cetera, in order to, to fix that. But this next one is kind of the point about how we sometimes defer to technology too much. And I think this is a case where if you get baffled by it, intimidated by it, you just say, well, that looks like a very sophisticated model and that's a very smart person who's presenting. We'll just go with it because it's good technology. Well, this was a story in Denver, uh, you know, in uh, last year, about a little more than a year and a half ago. There was a big rainstorm out uh, by the airport, uh, which is northeast of town. And the major uh, thoroughfare that, that where you take to go from Denver to the airport is Pena Boulevard. And there was a big wreck on it, and, and the traffic got all backed up. So what does everybody do? They immediately jump on their iPhones or their Google Maps or whatever and say, give me an alternate route. I know, uh, you know, you get the technology. It tells you there's a huge backup. That's good. Now I'm looking for an alternate route. So, you know, trust the technology. Take the alternate route. Well, the alternate route was a dirt road that had gotten totally swamped and muddy from the same rainstorm that caused the, the traffic accident. And essentially, you got 100 drivers that just drove right down into a muddy patch into a field, and they got even worse stuck than if they stayed on Peña Boulevard. We have to, again, domain expertise, the rest of that has said, I, that's a dirt road. I don't want to take a dirt road in a rainstorm. Come on. You know, so you overruled it, but the, the, the algorithm on the Google Maps didn't know that. It, it said, go this way, right? And so people go that way. You know, apply some knowledge, local ex expertise, common sense, even as you, you try to, you know, move through that. Well, that kind of leads to the idea of when we're interpreting this data, and this should cover two of the questions we've had come across, but sampling bias. And are we actually doing that process properly? And then throughout sampling, um, utilizing averages and where, why those you know, may not be leading to the best results, even though that's our best option. So what are your thoughts on making good decisions for, you know, long-term decision-making really for sampling and then how to better utilize data to get away from those pitholes that might come up because of an average? Now, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I consider myself a skeptical evangelist. I mean, we have to do this stuff, and it's really exciting. 
And uh, I'm a, a big proponent of the uh, machine learning uh, sort of scripting languages sort of techniques. But at the same time, uh, you, you look at it with an eye of caution. Um, are we correcting sampling bias answers? No, we're not. Um, I, I gave the experience before about uh, uh, normal distributions versus uh, um, log normal distributions. The perfect statistics is one in a scientific experiment where the scientist uh, really performs and uses all of the important variables, I think, in all of the different pattern, probabilistic sort of assessments. And they, they really test a lot of things. If you're a drilling engineer or a production engineer and you're going into management and said, you know, we just got this big piece of acreage uh, in this basin. I would like to, draw, uh, to drill a purely random statistical-based drilling program, spend hundreds of millions of dollars doing it, and I want to try all kinds of drilling techniques. I want to try all kinds of completion techniques, some new ideas we've never tried before. And before that, I, I want to get all of that data and study it for a year, and then I'll go back and tell you the best places to drill. Well, the, the manager's going to look at him and said, you're fired. I mean, I'm not going to do this. This isn't a science experiment. You're there to make money. Uh, so I want you to take the best techniques of the day. I want you to drill as many wells as possible in the best possible locations. I want a P80 result. I don't want a P50 result because my economics I just took to the bank and borrowed a whole bunch of money from are a P80 result. And so I want you always to drill the best thing. It's, it's an engineering exercise, not a science exercise. And because of that, we get biased data sets. And in, a, in order to do this, uh, you know, I, I said the only answer is really a hybrid approach where we apply our best analytics on our best data, knowing that there are problems with the data, and then be able to, to kind of step back and maybe uh, apply physical constraints on, on what it is we're trying to talk about. In so log distributions, average doesn't mean a damn thing. So you know, <laughs> throw that out. Type curves are built on averages that we're now figuring out they aren't very good predictors even of our shale reservoirs. And um, we, we paid attention to higher IP and we got higher IP. We forgot to look at the, uh, the decline curve part of it. And we are, our, our reservoirs have declined much faster than, than our business plans have ever tried to talk about. So clearly we have to look at the places where the data is poorly sampled and to try to figure out what substitutes we can put in their place to, to have a hybrid approach. Well, then how do you get an industry such as the oil and gas industry to start working in a how wrong are we? What, is, what really is our risk? What really is our uncertainty into that business proposal, that pitch, that sale? Well, that's a huge challenge because, I mean, we are a risk business. Uh, there, we, we, we're always taking a risk when we go out to do these things. So risk management should, should be one of our core uh, con uh, capabilities as we go through that. And, and we are reasonably good risk managers. So trouble is, we're, we're like salesmen when we have to go out and get a loan or uh, to sell a prospect or to, what, uh, to even sell it internal, your own management or what the with the process here. And that's when we're not so honest with ourselves, with our management, with the investors, with the, uh, you know, kind of the stakeholders in our kind of model. It, it's hard for us to admit, I don't know what I don't know, you know, which is really kind of the problem. It's, it's easier for us to say what we know, but then there's the other part of the story. Well, I think people are afraid to ask that question. And yet 
it is okay to admit what you don't know. In fact, it gets you further by breaking down what you don't know and asking that question, all right, what do I not understand can lead you to a better outcome and actually lead you down a discovery path. So how does management, how does the money behind oil and energy and honestly other industries, how does that start being okay with this new pivot that we have in the oil and gas industry and accepting we don't know what we don't know. So how do we figure it out? Well, this is a key point right now. I mean, we have to be more honest with what we don't know. And, you know, I've seen bad examples that manage, it starts with management behavior, I think. And, you know, I've seen some really bad management behaviors, which is the, you know, firing somebody because they gave a, a really honest P50 re result of the drilling program when they wanted higher. And when, when you, you know you're in, into a real statistics problem when the manager asks you to do something better than P50. Uh, but I've also ha been in situations where management really showed the right behavior. And, you know, maybe somebody drilled a, a really dumb dry hole, dumb in retrospect. And the, the guy said, you know, I'm sorry, I, I made this, you know, do um, after action reviews is the military term. But, uh, you know, we don't do, many companies don't do that look back analysis very carefully. But if you do Most look back analysis. Most companies don't have a look back analysis. Many just go blow and go. And they just, you know, it's, it's, it, they take off their, uh, their mirror, their side mirrors, throw them away, and they don't care what happened in the past. But. Those that do, those that, and now we've got time. We're not drilling all that many wells. We've got time to understand what the program's been in the last five or six, you know, go and blow years with regard to that. What did we learn from it? The rocks count. There's, there's drilling a whole bunch of wells as best you can on the bad acreage, on the bad rock isn't going to make you any money. So just stop doing that. Let, let's figure out what we didn't know about that. And be honest with it. Uh, the management, you know, the kind of look back analysis, the guy said, this was my prospect. I did this wrong. I didn't see this. I didn't include that. I forgot to include this piece. Mm -hmm. And, and he, expect, he kind of cringed and expected to get fired. And oh, yeah, you're getting fired. Oh, and yeah. The, and this manager said, great, thank you. Uh, you're, you know, I, and the guy said, well, aren't you going to fire me? And he said, no, you now are the smartest guy I have in this company because of all you just learned. Why would I want to fire you? And that management behavior begins to set a different culture. And that, then you become more honest and it's, it's, it's okay to say, I don't know what this part is. Can I have help? It's okay to do that. The, the investment community has to learn. It also has to accept this. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a term that I, I kind of have a slide at the end of this. It's called information asymmetry. That, that everything is about you know, someone who has a lot of information talking to someone who doesn't have enough. And in some cases, you've got a real rookie young interpreter and, um, and she's making a presentation and the experienced manager has more information than she does through his experience. So this information is, everything's about a negotiation. Everything, and that information is symmetry. The storytelling is attempted to level that field so that everybody sees the prospect in the same light. Every, so everybody sees the risks and the data, what's good about your model, what's not so good about your model, what's, what it is based on, is that, can you pro project that sort of conditions forward, et cetera, et cetera. But leveling that field through good storytelling and your analysis and data visualization 
enables that good storytelling, plus your domain expertise and experience, then you can move, uh, you know, you, you can move forward in a more honest way. And we're not trying to sell stuff that we are a little bit cringing about, like the, that prospect I sold back when I was uh, about a, a, an eight or seven or eight year uh, experienced person, that there was a whole lot of mistakes in that, that drilling package that I sold. And all of the wells got drilled. And all of those wells were dry. And, and, and a look back at Alice, all of those wells never had a chance. Well, actually, on that note, let's, let's move to the next slide, because I think this is a good segue into the other thing that industry needs to be comfortable with is that for the last decade, 12 years, we've been working without data. We've been working purely based off of the financials and, you know, crank it out, DCA all the way, you know, like you said, blow and go. And we have a decade to a decade and a half worth of engineers, field guys, geologists, geoscientists, everything across the spectrum, hell, even managers who have to reteach themselves how to go back to the science and being comfortable with uh, being a, you know, 10 year vet in the oil and gas industry, whatever your role and being willing to say, I don't know yet. So I think that goes back to understanding your data and recognizing the gaps in your data. But not everyone's going to be willing to say, hey, I'm 10 years in, but now I'm a junior. Oh, and that's, that's what's really awkward about, you know, any of this stuff. Saying I don't know is always awkward in a, in a professional setting. But let, here, let me, let's get into the next slide to talk about Fabulous. one of those key things, which is uncertainty. And I know you being a, a Mississippi lass, um, you know, I've, I've worked in Houston and uh, in New Orleans for a big chunk of my career. Uh, we all know about hurricane maps and hurricane charts. I, I, think, that, I think that's how, uh, you know, kids in elementary school in, in, the, in the southern U.S. learn their lat longs is from a hurricane chart. And, and hurricane charts tell a, a, a tremendous story about uncertainty. You know, but, but how to display them can get you into situations where you're lying with the data. Um, if you really look at the science, and this is a great case because there's a lot of very sophisticated computer processing and mathematical models that predict the course of storms, course and intensity. And, you know, you've got, a, when you have a display like this, first of all, your first problem is you're trying to map the storm track by a point. Well, the storm track could be a hundred miles long, uh, and, that, and uh, we all know the you know Gulf Coast. The impact, the wet side is the northeast side, and that's the most rain, and that's the biggest tidal current, et cetera. So, it doesn't matter where the center is; it measures where the wet side is with regard to that. And it's also really important to understand, as the model goes two, three, four days out, the uncertainty grows in terms of what its track may actually be. And this, and actually, you don't have one model. You may have three dozen models that are trying to, you know, have different assumptions and all the rest of this. And, and you try to put this together, and then you try to understand and communicate the idea of uncertainty. Because, you know, you're sitting here living in Miami, and I said, should I get the hell out of Dodge? Should I hunker down and survive this thing? Is it going to miss me, and I'm going to be okay? I mean, these are very personal and important decisions to try to make. And so you get hurricane chart. If, if someone displays a hurricane like this to me, I say they're trying to give me, and they're trying to reduce some of the complexity behind the scenes, sir. 
but they're trying to tell me all of the information that I need to know. The next slide shows something that I consider almost lying with data. First, and, and you see this so often on the, on the news when you talk about the weather. Well, first of all, they've only got 15 to 30 seconds to talk about the storm coming in. But this, this uh, sort of singular linear track with all of the little hurricane symbols on it, you know, it, 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 it gives you a, a, a sense of certainty. It gives you a sense of predictability. It gives you a sense of what exactly is going to happen, which that's what people want to know. You know, you've got Sunday at uh, 2 a.m. in the morning, it's going to be 65 miles an hour, and it's going to be just to the uh, west of Miami. Well, the answer is this storm didn't make a landfall until South Carolina and Georgia border. This storm, you know, went, moved to the, uh, to the east by more than 100 miles before, you know, it, it hit landfall. So all of this is a lie. Now, it's a lie when someone attempted to way oversimplify the uncertainty within the problem. Now, Key did they mean? Phrase. Key did phrase. They, yeah, did they mean to scare you? Well, a little bit. I mean, fear and greed drive audiences to marketing and uh, and to people watching things on television. So it also know, drives podcasts. And there, are, there is some a lot of that if we go to that. But how do you, you know, how do I convey? The uncertainty, the, the, how do I convey what I don't know as well as what I do know? How do I uh, uh, convey, you know, all of this stuff? And every, anybody in the Gulf of Mexico, they see these weather forecasts and they know their worst case, you know, forecast because the weatherman's got to protect himself on that side of it. But they know they, you know, in, in 90% of the cases, the storm, once it starts to feel land, will lower in intensity. That almost all of these things, because of the, of the air currents, tend to drift to the, uh, to the north and east when they get near land. And so you see something headed for you, you say, oh, well, it'll miss me. And you, you kind of use your own experience and you filter the result that the weatherman is trying to tell you. And you, you form your own counter interpretation or, or alternative interpretation of what the result is. But this is a lie to me. I mean, maybe it's unintentional. Maybe it's an attempt to somebody who tried to dumb it down too much. But this is not true. This is lying with data. Well, that leads us into another question we're getting from the group over here. At what point do you pay attention to the outliers, recognize them as outliers, or recognize them as novelties that actually impoint, uh, impact your trending? And I think that will be a good place to sort of uh, wrap this up if we have any more questions because i do agree with you this is going to have to be a part two to keep this conversation going but what are your thoughts on that identifying outliers versus novelties really important kind of issue because um, you know it, it, it's easy with averaging algorithms smoothing algorithms etc to get everything to kind of converge to the mean uh so what does an outlier mean is an outlier noise is an outlier a really interesting new trend is an outlier, you know, first of all, is the outlier even physically possible? So, I mean, you take those outliers and before you throw them away, because they, they make your charts look bad, uh, and you, you, th you filter out the outliers and everything, and then your R squared goes way up, and your QQ chart does, you know, it does nice things. And, and from that statistical quality of fit to your model, you know, you get rid of the outliers, your numbers are always better. But be careful when you get rid of the outliers. I mean, um, 
examine the outliers, spend some extra time, which you may or may not have, because that's why your manager needs to give you the time to, to sift through all of this data. Is the outlier possible? Well, no, well, get rid of it. Is the outlier clearly, you know, from all the other stuff you've looked at, noise? Well, get rid of it. Is the outlier not one of those things? Is it a potentially really interesting trend? Are there different data attributes that may define that? You, you, it may not be an outlier at all. It may be a different pattern. And, and in that, you know, there, everybody rushes to the linear regression parts of the model building or machine learning neural nets or um, a random forest, you know, uh, sorted trees and all the different techniques. But it may be that those outliers are a different and interesting pattern. Maybe you shouldn't lump it into your class A model. Maybe it's a class B data sample. And there's uh, some very interesting results that sometimes you throw your data in there. You need to understand about classification before you jump into regression. You need to understand, all, are all these data types describing the same phenomena? Or is it that? I mean, you could lump all of the, the reservoirs in the Permian Basin into one model, and they won't look the same. So you're going to need to filter out all the noisy data. Well, mm -hmm. is the noisy data a different bench in the Wolf Camp, or is it a different model in a tight sand above it or I mean understand classification before you jump into correlation if some of those outliers are are a different class they're not noise they're not a mistake but they are a different class of problem that you need to look at well I think that's excellent for everyone who is sending all these questions and they are awesome and we will be sure to kick off next week's uh session for the second half of this um, since we are running out of time and we want to be respectful of everyone's time we will address all questions that we did not hit today uh, at the beginning of that and then jim i think next week we jump into uncertainty and then cause versus correlation there um, to sort of wrap up next week's uh, second half of <laughs> how to lie with data does that sound good yeah, and then we'll get into the algorithms behaving badly part. Of the, of I know. The I'm excited about that one. But before we close it out today, I did want to end on you just had a new book release. And I want everyone who's paying attention to, uh, especially given the conversations I'm seeing here, I think it would all be interesting to them. So can you talk to us a little bit about this book that you recently uh, had published? Uh, well, the, the book's called The Digital Canterbury Tales. And it is, I don't know, it, it's somewhere halfway between nonfiction and fiction. I think I, it's, a, it's a fictional. Why is it halfway between nonfiction and fiction? It's a fictional account of a made-up oil company. And from the, using the Canterbury Tales metaphors of different characters traveling on the same journey, but with different attitudes and different fears and, and, and hopes and dreams. I, I took, uh, I think I ended up with 27, 28 characters in the book. And I described their view of digital transformation from a CEO down to a lease operator to some third-party consultants and tech salesmen. And uh, each kind of goes through a, uh, a short story on their attitude. Again, it's, it's opinion, but it's their opinion. So it's truth to them. And uh, from each of their sort of perspective, and they're not the same. They are. Some people are anxiously awaiting new technology. Some people are fearing it's going to cost them their jobs. 
And it's the same journey, but it is different people's views of it. That seems very relevant in today's uh, society, especially with 2020 and the pivots we're having to face in oil and energy right now. Without a doubt. And, um, you know, uh, it's a relatively short book, 120 some pages. Uh, I got a young high school student to to illustrate it for me. So uh, that that kind of artwork in there is, is very cool. (laughs) <laughs> I, I had her draw it like, like a medieval knight flying a drone, right? So a little <laughs> bit of the old world and a little bit of the new. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a, been a journey I've been on for a couple of years trying to write these stories and understand that. The, the semi-nonfiction part of it is that most of these characters are people that I know, I've known over the years, some of them very good friends. Um, I've taken some liberty in putting them in certain positions. Uh, and but uh, the interpretation, I think, makes it a little more human and hopefully a little more entertaining. I, I would say so. I'm very excited to get my copy myself. But for everyone listening, I will be sure to email you all with links to his book, links to the podcast, and I will make sure that everyone who attended today knows exactly when next week we will be doing part two. Again, we just want to be respectful of everyone's time. But Jim, thank you so much for taking the time today to kick off such a necessary and relevant conversation, especially with all that we're having happen in 2020 and all of the model interpretations we are seeing across the board and on the nightly news. It's It's been kind of interesting for a industry that is big data to look at how other people interpret data and to sort of point out what may or may not be working with this uh, type of communication. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I knew this was probably too much time, but the conversation is, I think, very important. Uh, oh, and absolutely. for you, Catherine, I know you love conspiracy theories. So next yes. week we have got a conspiracy theory. Oh, thank it. God. It's I was good. listening to murder podcast uh, pulling up to this because I knew it would be so fun. <laughs> but again, if, as everyone knows, you are tuned in to the SirTech webinar series. We will be releasing uh, this part one as a podcast on the crude audacity as well. If you ever have any questions about enhanced oil recovery, uh, be sure to go to our website at www.sirtech.com for lab capabilities. Uh, we actually have a newsletter, so sign up for that. Um, we like to keep everyone up to date on everything that's happening and a global perspective of the oil field and across the sector that is enhanced oil recovery and improved oil recovery. Some people forget that's out there. But otherwise, thank you all so much, and we will see you next week. And Jim, I cannot wait. Well, remember, uh, trust but verify your data-driven models. You should make that a T-shirt. Bye, y'all.